those drops of self-care, those drops of self-acceptance, that was the earliest self-kindness I ever knew. I believe every person deserves kindness in their lives. I believe kindness has the power to change us from the inside out, to change the world beginning with you and me. And that's why I wanted to create a show called Self-Kindness, Self-Kindness with Pete. It's about figuring out how kindness towards ourselves can be our superpower, how kindness is more than just a reward at the end of the day. It's about living clear lives, focused lives, motivated by loving concern, rather than motivated by fear and anxiety. It's about how we make that change. How does self-kindness show up the moment we need it the most? You are so worthy of the kindness that's already in you. And each week, we'll be exploring how to do that with people who are leading this kindness awakening in their own lives. My name is Pete Sibley, and I'm so grateful you're here. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Self-Kindness with Pete. I'm Pete Sibley, and I'm so grateful that you're here, that you're tuning in. Thanks so much to all of you that are reaching out to me and telling me how much these different interviews uh, are mean to you and what they're bringing up. I, I so appreciate that feedback. So great to hear from you. Um, if you haven't heard some of these back episodes, oh my gosh, some of these guests are just blowing my mind and I find I keep going back to the wisdom that they're sharing. So, you know, part of this podcast, if you haven't done it already, would you subscribe to it? It doesn't cost anything. It just takes a moment. You just click on wherever you're listening to your podcast and subscribe. That helps to pull this episode, helps to pull up this content around self-kindness to the foreground, which I think is such a powerful opportunity and thing that we can offer right now in this moment. You know, some people are talking about listening to these podcasts and then that spurs a conversation. So I love that. You know, husband and wife listen to Anne and I, my wife, talking about um, our frustration with kids sometimes. And that became a a stepping point for them to talk about self-kindness in their relationship. So I love hearing about that. And, you know, reach out to me. You know, we're not alone in this. You can go to PeteSibley.com, see the work that I'm doing with people, individual, one-on-one. I have a four-week program that's coming up. You can check that out all around. Let's do self-kindness. Let's really look at self-kindness as this journey of a practice rather than an arrival point. And, you know, before I get into this incredible interview that I got to do with best-selling author Alexandra Fuller, I want to just take a moment to reflect. You know, this week what's coming up for me is this idea that someday I'm going to arrive at a point where my life is just clicking, it's all working, you know, the mind loves to do that when I have enough money, when I've done enough internal work, and just want to remind us that self-kindness is moment-by-moment journey. It's opening to everything of what it means to be human. And who better to explore that topic than with my guest today, Alexandra Fuller. 
Alexandra Fuller is the author of several books, most recently Travel Light, Move Fast, published by Penguin Books, which will be out in paperback on August 4th. Fuller's work has appeared in many publications, including National Geographic Magazine, The New Yorker Magazine, Harper's, Vogue, Travel and Leisure, Granta, The New York Times Book Review, and most recently, Oprah Magazine. Her TEDx talk, My Liberation is Tied Up with Yours, aims to expose the architecture of white supremacy that she was raised under in South Africa and that she found reflected in her adopted Wyoming home. In my opinion, Alexandra is a powerhouse in someone who has delved deeply into the question, what is it to be human? I'm so excited about this conversation around self-kindness, so let's get to it. Hello, Alexandra Fuller. Thank you so much for coming on today to talk about self-kindness. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Pete. It's um, it's really exciting to reconnect at this surprising time with, mm. you know, a fellow artist and um, someone whose voice I admire so much. So thank you for thinking of me. Oh, wow. Well, thank you. Yeah, well, I love that because, um, you know, really a, a lot of even just this adventure with this podcast has been around intuition. Mm. And so, you know, we haven't talked since... Uh, for maybe about 10 years and uh but you came to mind so so I love that and I, I love that we get to talk today so yeah and I love that the last time you would have seen me was at the height of my insanity um I think <laughs> an ego on a pair of legs in a wig <laughs> mm. uh, gripped to driving you know to a steering wheel going far too fast and mm. um prior to my sobriety prior to the loss of my father prior to I think the end of my marriage prior mm. to my subsequent engagement to a beautiful artist and my catastrophic devastating breakup with him prior to you know I think my father's death and um and the fallout from that and then prior to losing my son and so the 10 years have been a rowdy middle age and I am so grateful for the way that the universe nudged me toward a knowing that middle age was, could be, can be rowdy. You know, I'm 51 now. And so the last time we would have spoken, I was 41. Um, and I still think I believed impervious and, um, and had, I think an unkind and impervious I was unkind toward myself and and sort of impervious to subtlety, impervious to the idea that my opinion might not be correct or welcome. Um, mm. And that dismantling of sobriety and grief, um, and I'm so grateful for both, mm. uh, mm. brought me to my knees and that brought me to self-kindness. But it, because I think, I mean, I, I don't know if listeners in grief will resonate with this. I think it depends a little bit where, you know, whom you're grieving and where you are on your grief spectrum. But for me, I realized um, not so much after my father died, not so much during the estrangement from my mother and sister, which were both exceedingly painful griefs. And even during the breakup with my fiance, which was, a, I mean, just 
oh God, the grief of that, the pain. I mean, I was just fetal position, but then follow. And that was finally, I knew as I was running toward his body, you know, he's 21 years old, died in the sleep of a seizure that um, I too had died. And I knew too that I wouldn't be through my grief until I was grateful for that death. Mm -hmm. Um, This is your son. This is my son. And Mm -hmm. um, so, wow, I mean, the woman that you conjured up and the woman who's coming to you now, um, I don't recognize her. And like I say, I mean, I'm grateful for like, you know, I got curious about the works of Jung and um, particularly the 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 work that some of his female students had done on the anima rather than the animus, you know, the female psyche. And I became interested in cycles of violence. And I was already thought that I was dismantling racism. I mean, I was participating as violently as possible, but in my head, I was a voice for the voiceless. And I mean, there was a lot of arrogance around there, but I was reading my way you know, toward this moment. And Thomas Merton says, you don't think your way into a new kind of living. You live your way into a new kind of thinking. And, you know, I think it took me, you know, because I had a big force of life force and a ton of ego, um, which had enabled me to survive a powerfully traumatic childhood. Um, you know, it, it, it it became a disservice when, uh, in grief in middle age when a quietening and a silencing and a kindness um, is survival and not just for yourself but for you know family and by extension community and then of course you know state nation globe. Yeah. Oh well. Thank you for sharing. What I just heard you say at the end there was maybe the crux of why self kindness for me and. I'll ask you this question after of why self-kindness for you. But first I wanted to say, you know, sometimes for me, it's just like hiking in those beautiful mountains, the Tetons. Sometimes you're on a hike where you are up above the person below you. It's that steep. And if you kick off a rock, mm. you could, you know, potentially cause harm to the person below you. And so your responsibility is to be aware enough of not only being conscious of the steps that you're taking on that precipice or, you know, on that on that hike where it could be dangerous for you. But if you kick off a rock, you need to have the awareness to immediately, you know, shout out to the person below you, you know, rock or heads up, like look out. And so those two need to happen simultaneously. And for me, you know, being an outdoor enthusiasm enthusiast, that analogy works for self-kindness that if I kick off you know a rock something gets kicked off in me frustration anger despair grief pain I need to be wary of my own steps at the same time so I can have the awareness to call it out so I'm not causing more harm around me so for me, a self-kindness practice is holding those at the same time. It's like making sure that the inner of Pete is <laughs> is being tended to with that same care as I'm walking. Mm-hmm. But also to notice that that self-kindness is how I am calling out rock to the rest. Love you know, that. being responsible 
for yeah. the rest of the world. Yeah. So, so I love that's, that. the, you know, that's the biggest challenge that I know when I say self-kindness, people think of a bar of chocolate. They think, <laughs> of, you know, a really beautiful, you know, nice warm tub at the end of the day. And those are great acts of kindness. But I'm talking about, you know, before we started recording, this reconciliation that's being asked of us in the world, have we done that reconciliation internally between mm-hmm. the heart, the heart mm-hmm. and the in in the mind and yes. the fluidity of that? So, mm-hmm. so my my question coming back to you is why self kindness for you in this moment, and why self why have this conversation right now? Oh, because it's all there is. I mean, it's all there is, and. So much is coming up for me in response to what you're saying. I love your analogy, the outdoor enthusiast, that responsibility. Um, I guess something that came up for me was I came out of insane, insane, and I use that word deliberately, trauma, um, and a lot of love uh, of land, especially a lot of love from an indigenous community. So I was raised in the Eastern Highlands of Zimbabwe, and we were in a very racist community, very racist family, white supremacist. And um, my sister and I were armed with, uh, yeah, I mean, guns at a very young age and um, put in front of a target of, you know, a man of color. And um, for target practice, told this is how you shoot to kill, this is how you shoot to maim we're not going to teach you the maiming part. And witnessing that violence, witnessing that anger, witnessing that hatred, and knowing deep down intuitively that that anger and that hatred, that fear, was what uh, the fuel of our community was, so that if you disappointed these people, that anger, fear, and, and you know, would be turned on you. And so it put me in lockstep in a straitjacket of terror. And as a white supremacist child, female, I mean, I'm a second-class citizen. I'm not third or fourth because I'm not black. But sympathy for people of color immediately, you know, relegates you to outcast. And that traumatic break with my family um, probably wasn't necessary if I had gotten myself into sobriety sooner and especially into an Al-Anon program because that kind of extreme racism comes often with alcoholism and other forms of numbing. I mean, that amount of hatred is numbing, but it's a painful numbing. It's like being numbed with, I mean, with a machete. You're just chopping off the parts of yourself you're afraid of. And so the anesthesia for that's alcohol, which further and fuels rage. And so, you know, cycles of that, um, unkindness. And for me, realizing that the cavalry wasn't coming, my sister wasn't coming, my mother wasn't coming, my the community that I had been raised in and whom I had sort of in a way, you know, I had attached myself to as my first and foremost caregivers when I needed that love that unconditional love the most mm. and they were unable to show up and it's okay. I get it that, you know, they're, they're offended that, you know, in my writing, I have called us out as white supremacist. And I think the part that's hard to hear is 
we were we are white supremacists and love heals everything love mm. can not we cannot ever repair the damage we've done i can't the things that i know that have happened in the name of white settlers and white supremacy that can't be undone but amends can be made in this generation mm. toward you know a more wholesome community so the whole lot just got really wrapped up for me in beginning to see that profound grief profound allowance of grief um and the way that indigenous communities grieve was so different than the way I was expected to grieve my son it was a very lonely, uh, hostile, almost experience. You know, people either just want to medicate you or sort of sterilize you out of the picture um, mm. or to pathologize your grief. And the most profound healing came from my indigenous friends in Zambia and um my friends of color from Zimbabwe, um, my friends of color in Zimbabwe were in touch with me immediately. And their response wasn't, oh, you'll never get over this or, you know, but they used the Mashona word, we are devastated with you. Mm. And um, my Zambian community of indigenous people um, who are the Goba, um, particularly Hilda Tembo, who's, um, you know, she said the first one is the hardest. <laughs> And that just mm -hmm. put me in my place of gratitude that I could see even in grief that I had privilege. And I think that when we're talking about kindness, it's important to like separate out when kindness is grace, when kindness is privilege, when kindness is earned, when kindness is authentic. Mm -hmm. And then to recognize that when kindness comes across all of those barriers at one another. I mean, that's just profound healing. Um, mm. Mm. And so it was a lonely journey. I mean, it was incredibly lonely, but the universe or the primordial intelligence or the great, you know, compassionate being, whatever it is. I mean, I really did feel like a parable out of the Bible, thinking, feeling most unworthy of, you know, like the greatest sinner that in the parables, you know, Jesus looks out for. And for me, that felt like the greatest sinner. Um, to have been raised in this much aggression and to have sort of pushed against it, but with a lot of opinion, a lot of ego, not a lot of love. Mm -hmm. And then to have that dismantling and, and, and to feel a thirst, to feel a real, I think, sympathy. I mean, one can never feel empathy, but, you know, at the same time to have lost my father then, you know, because he was really the sort of thing that held the family together in spite of the anger that I was writing and speaking openly about our racism and alcoholism and our insanity, um, which for me go hand in hand. And I, I think to speak about it is to, is to cure yourself. I mean, secrets, they're not mm -hmm. secret anyway. <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. Who's it a secret from? You know, and then to lose Fuller and he, he was, uh, my son Fee was, um, he was 21, very beloved by this community. And he was a phenomenally natural athlete and student. And he did great social justice work. He was a great friend. He he had done fabulous, interesting internships. He had traveled. I mean, he had had such a, a privileged life and he had used that privilege so wisely and so humbly. And I know that the last thing he said to his sister was, I love you, before he went to bed. 
And the last text he sent was to a girlfriend, a female friend in Alaska who was fishing, holding up her her right to be on a boat full of men and her right to defend mm. herself against sexism and misogyny, and that that is a form of self-kindness. It makes the world kinder. Mm. It was easier to be in. Um, and so on the what would have been his 23rd birthday early this year in March, um, actually, you know, before everything shut down, it had come to me in meditation that amends needed to be go beyond just me and my generation. I mean, there was something intergenerational about this. Um, and that the healing needn't be specific to Zimbabwe, specific to the wounds of my childhood, but specific to being a white settler. In other words, Alanon really helped me see, oh, get in your lane, mop up mm. your side of the street, self-heal you, and then do the healing reparations you wish had been done upon you. You know I mean? Just... Yeah. Yep. Back to Jesus, man. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah. so I went on to um, the Wind River Reservation with a friend, and I was granted an audience in front of both business councils, and I pledged um, the equivalent in my property taxes every year to both tribes until such a time as institutional reparations are instituted. So I pay my property taxes twice, once to you know, my white settler government and then once to the legitimate sovereign government um, mm. whose treaties with the U.S. government have been violated and broken. Just one thing that I want to go back to. Yes. Um, and wow, thank you for being such an example of, for me, it's like I want to continue to take it out of my head. We can have a beautiful conversation about self-kindness, but then to actually witness the action. So, you know, like paying your your property t taxes twice action you know it gets moved from i want to be something moving and changing and flowing in the positive in the world to actually taking those steps so i love that and i want to get into if i could just um, almost ask you to unpack that just a little more in the sense mm -hmm. that you know you talked about um that support that you received from those communities that you grew up in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what I'm really curious about, Alexandra, is how, how was that, how did that feel? How was that actualized inside of you rather than just, you know, mm -hmm. you hear this woman say these words, you hear this community say that we're, we grieve with you rather than trying to change anything about the mm -hmm. situation. They just said, you know, it was it was like the external gave you a chance to to just be 100 percent who you were in that moment. So what I'm curious about is what did that feel like internally <laughs> for you? And it, because that's 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 my hope is like that a self-kindness isn't just this external of 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 like, wow, you know, I can get myself to a good place in my mind. It's like I want to feel it. I want to live it into the world. You know, Pete, I think that we are so divorced in white Judeo-Christian culture of anything that promotes the health and well-being of women or indigenous communities. And so my revelation in this long grief has been, if it's good for women and indigenous communities, you're not going to find it easily in our community. And mm. to <laughs> receive such love, such wise 
love, such wise, unconditional love. After what I know, what I've witnessed, what I've experienced, white communities have done to community, you know, communities of color, indigenous communities across the globe. I mean, that's, you know, when we learn about God's love, we learn that it looks like indigenous love in my experience. There is mm -hmm. not the, I mean, that doesn't mean every indigenous person isn't, I mean, that, that there isn't a huge amount of dis reflected dysfunction and mm -hmm. reflected trauma and reflected inherited, you know, pain. But coming out of the sterility of a white settler community where the only way to be acceptable, not lovable, but acceptable, and in other words, feared, is to be a straight, white, aggressive male. That mm -hmm. was the pinnacle. That's who everyone else looked up to and trembled to. And then to find secreted away uh, among, I mean, horribly abused labor who were, who we were living among in these very rural parts of Zimbabwe and Zambia. I mean, abused financially, abused, I mean, yeah, I mean, just in every way, really denied basic services to find their secreted away um, ritual and community that enabled a survival of this kind of violence. And that, those drops of self care, those drops of self acceptance, that was the earliest self kindness I ever knew. And when someone dies in all the indigenous communities in which I've lived, the woman, Ulalate, and it's profoundly moving. I mean, it's just this song straight to the heavens. And as more people get the news, they Ulalate. And then they perform a ceremony where, uh, you know, those closest to you throw themselves on the ground and writhe in the dirt, um, both at funerals, but also upon hearing the news of your grief. Because it is understood that the bonds between the living are too difficult to break alone. And so your community helps you break the bonds with the living so that your spirit, your loved one's spirit can become the ancestor he or she is meant to become. Like That promotion is available because of this indigenous ritual. We don't have that here. We don't even have the language that allows our loved ones to become ancestors. And yet my precocious ancestor is why self-kindness, you know. My precocious ancestor is why sobriety. My precocious ancestor is why amends. My precocious ancestor is why I walk in love. And, you know, Pete, as you were talking about the, you know, the rock analogy, um, I was thinking... <laughs> When you come out, I, I don't know about your background because you have not been narcissistic enough to write five memoirs like some of us. But, you know, I came out of so much trauma and so much abuse and also a lot of like, I mean, a lot of education, a lot of privilege, a lot of art, a lot of literature, a lot of culture, a lot of language, I mean, a lot of exposure. I mean, to very Western. And I had spent 17 years as a, as a reporter in post-conflict areas such as Haiti, Angola, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Mozambique. I mean, just looking obsessively at, at how communities heal from trauma. Of course, everything was about me. I mean, I didn't realize it at the time, but I think I was really looking for myself. Um, the humility, man, it, it impressed me. And so when I began to get sober, I would say that I, it was like pouring cold water on a very hot fire, all the embers that of trauma, addiction, 
insanity, all the embers of of just what I had seen and not bothered to process because I I I think was so able to dissociate. I thought it was normal that you dissociated to cope with trauma. And then once I got sober, it was like I took the lid off the PTSD and I began to experience severe flashback and nightmares and I'm highly disturbed and uh, wow, I mean, just very dysregulated behavior. Um, and I think that that is so little understood in our community. Shamanically, it is very well understood in indigenous mm-hmm. communities that the ghosts and demons of childhood trauma can be expunged in a way that looks terrifying, looks like a flashback, looks like you're reliving the thing. But rather than medicate people out of that, they, as a community, have healing mechanisms. They have still an attachment to an understanding of the healing of trauma that can express itself as it looks insane. And I'm so grateful that that was a profound self-kindness, was to allow myself and accept the insanity of what looked like full-blown flashbacks, full-blown PTSD. And I never arrested that with pharmaceuticals because in my experience, I had seen this already. I'd witnessed it in indigenous communities. So I wasn't frightened. I was impressed with how real it was. It's just bubbling up in me that that I feel like is it. That's that. That's the opportunity, you know. Like you said, stored away somewhere in these cultures is the experience of unconditional love, and you know, I love the language that you're putting on it for me today because, you know, I've always just called it the intellectual versus the heart. And <laughs> right. I, I I feel like when when I sit with people or the conversations I have with people, it's like we know. There is that knowing. You talked about that deep knowing, even when you were really young and being handed that that weapon. You on some there was this deep knowing, and we teach it out of correct. We teach it out. We live it out. We and we don't. Maybe we are are waking up to how we're doing teaching it out systemically, but we. I think we really are are waking up to how we teach it by the lives that we live. And so you, you know, are even talking about the journey that you're on right now of the life that you are living Mm -hmm. to begin teaching that unconditional love. You know, something you said was, uh, uh, woke up in me, how the reminder of how, when we say the word love, it comes with, this whole, you know, all the images, it comes with all the definitions. And yet, you know, we still say unconditional love, like we know what it is. And it's like, <laughs> or like we're practicing it. Or, yeah. Or like we have a clue what unconditional love really means. And I think, yeah. I think that's, you know, I could speak for myself. That's why I moved away from a, 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 a you know, a set religion because I felt like, that I I couldn't get to unconditional love when people kept telling me there was this unconditional love in the universe. I was like, all right, but you keep telling me the things that I have to do to get there. <laughs> yes. So, you know, so but these cultures know, that, sorry, sorry, that no, go ahead. Yeah. you know, they're embodying it rather than writing it. They're living it. They're writhing on the ground rather than telling you, oh my gosh, this is going to take a while to get through. Oh, no, no, no. They tell you you will never get over this. That's the white. Right. Yeah. I mean, just so so deadening. 
So, yeah. So rather than deadening, it's like the allowance of it. Does that translate at all as far as like that felt experience and how oh, like the, totally. felt, I mean, it can... the felt experience is the is the wisdom of the age of like live right. right here, right That's now. Right. It's like, well, how do I do that by that felt experience and then act? And then well, and, act. and, you know, I think that, well, I don't think I know we both know I mean, the cut has a lot to answer for. So at some point we began to privilege, you know the quote-unquote rational, intellectual, we began to privilege people who could demonstrate that they could provide themselves with an inordinate amount of possessions and, um, you know, degrees from expensive universities. And we lost, you know, we lost touch with and began to sort of despise what we would call the irrational or the... um, uh, you know, the inexplicable and mysterious, because those things terrify patriarchy. It Because mm-hmm. it deconstructs time, it deconstructs space. We begin to reclaim our God in ourselves. We begin to reclaim God from the white, angry, pissed off bastard of our youth. And we begin to see God in ourselves. And there's nothing more threatening to a fragile, uh, you know, institutional ego that is throwing around so much hate mm. and so much uh, uh, insult onto very wounded people. Um, I mean, we're a very wounded nation. I think we're waking up to that. And I think we're waking up to the fact that we're evolving and that this is possible, which is what communities of color have been telling us forever. Come out into the liberation. It's fun out here. And we were just terrified of all that singing and dancing. I mean, as a child, even that was, we were taught to be terrified of Chimaranga music. It was called freedom music, which we all loved. I mean, it is Thomas Mapfomo. And I mean, you know, Mm-hmm. Oliver Mutakudzi, these just giants of music that just just were throwing down some of the most inventive, creative, urgent music, and we were listening to ABBA. And that is white noise. That's a kind of assault. That's a kind of self-unkindness. Mm-hmm. And yet mm-hmm. it was based on elitism and you know, and intellectualism. And so I think for me, finding this fine line between uh, you know, this way that we privilege, I don't care how much learning you've got. Robert Mugabe had seven law degrees. You don't get more learning than that. That does not make of you mm. a kind, wise person. Um, Nelson Mandela came out of a similar system and was just as brilliant. And, you know, but he responded to the world with love. And that's how mm. he emerged. And, um, you know, you have the example of Nelson Mandela in South Africa and Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe, and then you see what happens to a whole nation based on one man's inability to self-love and to mm. attach onto the trauma that he that was meted out on him. And so I think for me, self-kindness is a way to, I mean, this is an unpopular thing to say, but since I had to say it to myself and I feel okay, it was grow up, grow up. The trauma of your childhood is no longer an excuse for you to keep behaving badly, beginning with why are you not taking care of yourself? And I I was thinking about this in in, in relation to speaking to you and you know, why why did it take me so long to understand the like the the social justice importance of self-kindness? And mm-hmm. I think it's because for the first little bit you can only 
give yourself the self-kindness that you were given as a child. Now, for me, luckily, it included the grace of this indigenous community just everywhere I went. I mean, we were a minority by a long shot. Whites were so even as toxic and hateful and aggressive as we were, the love couldn't help but penetrate. And um, and also the fact that I was a child, so I was open to that, even though I was also being raised in this very toxic environment, which I espoused verbally. But deep down, I knew where the love was. I knew where to go for comfort. I still do. I know mm. where to go, you know, if I need unconditional love. It's not to the family of origin, that's for sure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that that sort of coming to terms with with the conditioned self yeah. and the conditioned unkindness self-kindness yeah. is meditation it's sobriety it's uh it's getting myself into a good counselor it's spending time with sober people it's for me stopping flying stopping moving just being yeah. just you know and for me too i built after my son died i sort of scraped together everything i had and bought a piece of land out um, in southeastern Idaho with a creek running through it and a little forest. And um, I built a yurt on it with room for a stall underneath for my ancient horse. And um, and I really built it with the intention of having a grief refuge. And that was just the intention. I didn't, mm -hmm. I don't really do any social media. And I mean, I'm so sort of cut off here. Um, but what was crazy was that before it was really finished built, the first person came whose father had died a week earlier and said, can I just be here for a week? I need to grieve. Wow. And it was as if I know, right? Wow. Um, and then the very yeah. next thing that happened was my beautiful 28-year-old nephew, who I've been estranged from for seven years, called me up and said, I'm sober. Would you come and, you know, can I come and see you? <laughs> and wow. so... Uh, and then another friend showed up homeless and um, out of work from COVID and needing to grieve the end of her career. And boom, <laughs> here it is. Well, I, I think you, what you're, I mean, maybe I'm I'm putting my spin on it, but, you know, I, I as a musician and I was, I'm always touched when an adult comes to me and they're a beginner. <laughs> yes. They have never picked up an instrument and they're just go or they're trying to sing. They always wanted to. I mean, I get so many stories from from people and I used to do this program called Awaken Art and it was all about taking away all the reasons why you couldn't say yes to to that creative impulse in you. So, mm. you know, I would have these people who said, you know, someone told them they couldn't sing. And but the, all they've ever wanted to do was sing or someone told them they couldn't write, you know, whatever it is. And so I am so impressed because what it is, is it's clumsy to be a beginner again. And, and what vulnerable. it is, it's yes. so vulnerable to and it even more so than instead of just putting on the YouTube video, they're actually coming and they're telling another person, a person who's seen as a professional they're going and saying, I can't do this. Can you help me? Mm -hmm. And I feel like that attitude is the attitude that we all need to take with self-kindness. Yes. Like, I can't do this. Can you help me? And to, re you know, just to, to remind ourselves that we're all, you know, regardless of 
where we are in self-kindness or love, we're all still like there isn't something that we can't be shown today that can continue to open and blow our our hearts wide open in love. So it's like every day we're an amateur in love. <laughs> and and so it's like what you're pointing to is is that reminder that it's clumsy and we don't want to look clumsy. We don't we're right. you know, we don't want to look foolish. We don't want to look like we don't hit together and and we don't want to do the you know this thing that like oh wait I don't even really know what the plan is here but I'm going on an intuition to buy a piece of land I'm going on an intuition to build this year and then suddenly oh now it looks like there was a plan here people are coming (laughs) and you know Ann and I got to live that by you know our life adventure of selling a home and driving around the country and afterwards you know, people look back and they go, they have a story about it, but really it's very awkward. It's clumsy. It's vulnerable in the moment we're doing it. That's right. That's right. And I think the creative impulse, you know, Ai Weiwei, the great Chinese artist, dissident artist said, it can only be untaught. And, um, you know, when I hear people say, oh, I'm bad at art, I'm bad at English, I'm bad at music, I'm bad at it, it oh, oh, there is no place in my childhood in indigenous community where I ever remember someone saying, I'm bad at this. Because that would have been like saying, I'm bad at being in my body. I mean, yeah. just dance and music and art and that creates creative impulse is such a primary connection to mm-hmm. God or, you know, the great one or whatever spirit or the primordial intelligence or the universal, whatever you call it. Um, And it is, I feel like I abused access to that creative space my whole life because, you know, because I wasn't here, but that's okay. I was coming out of an abusive place. And as self-kindness is generated, I find that I'm accessing that creative place with way more gratitude and awe and faith. Mm. Mm-hmm. And with so, a humble oh, understanding that it is everyone's, that I'm just the one who's yes. chosen to sit down and channel it and to channel it into building the space. But it belongs to everyone. That creative impulse isn't mine. And every creative person knows that. And that's why I think, I mean, honestly, talking mu- with musicians or poets or writers or artists to me is so refreshing because all artists and poets and writers, and I mean, anyone who's accessing that creative place knows it's God-given. And what they do with it after that doesn't always, isn't always pure, of course. I mean, we're human. It's messy. It's, it can be gross. It can be just like anything misused. And because it's God, it doesn't matter. God doesn't care who he gives the creative impulse to. <laughs> you know, God's mm. indifferent. It's a free gift. It's grace. But it's unconditional, right? It is unconditional. But, but coming to like love that and trust it and not I mean, weirdly, I'm finding like not censoring myself is new. And that's a kind of self-kindness that I've never experienced. Now, my former refusal to self-censor was simply me standing up and shrieking my opinion very loudly and thinking that that was the same as not self-censoring. But 
what I am learning right now is that my not self-censoring very often looks like allowing the silence that I so often drown out with my noise to speak mm. most mm. volubly. Mm. Well, that that's a beautiful, as we're wrapping up, what does that look like for you right now as, as a, as a, a, a practice? Well, I mean, really, it's it looks incredibly selfish. I have to say, I spend a lot of time in meditation, um, and but for for primarily for PTSD, I um, have found some wonderful tools, some breathing, um, Kundalini breathing, especially Kundalini mm-hmm. yoga. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a creek running through my blessed refuge or this blessed refuge of everyone's. Um, And so the creek is where I go and put my body once or twice or more than that a day and just feel that jolt back into my body Mm. Um, so that, you know, I just renounce unnecessary thought, renounce unnecessary speak speech and, um, and who knows what's necessary or unnecessary. I mean, it's so easy Mm. to sort of sermonize, isn't it? But I mean, to me, it's it's that. And then recognizing this is the season that my son died. And so summers uh, can be riotous internally for me. And so I spend a lot of time just pulling thistle up and 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 building this yurt. Um, and so that physical work of of building and weeding and um, I've made a decision and it's partly, you know, financial and partly just intentional that everything on this land be done by hand, that there be least impact to insects mm. and birds and wildlife. So, you know, it means things go slowly and that it's very quiet here. Um, and so for me, my service, I, like self-kindness just feels um, gross. I, I don't know what other word for it, sticky. Unless it's in the, unless the vision is service, that I can visualize that there will be people to come mm. into this mm. garden mm. and just meditate one day, that I can picture them everywhere. And I mean, it was, it was amazing when I was barely a month or, or, or really six weeks into sort of the gardening work and, and clearing the brush around the creek and making areas for meditation. And one day I look over and I just started to weep. There was you know, a woman meditating on a cushion, just like I had visioned. And, and my love for her was so profound that she had the courage to show up and say, help, I need a space. And Mm. I know that you've made a space. Can I come and sit here? Mm. So, and then of course the healing for me, talk about self-kindness, the healing of somebody else's peaceful practice is medicine. And it'll be medicine for the other people who come. And so it is my hope that this is where people can come to repair from the things that so wounded me, racism and addiction, and which go hand in hand, Um, you know, and loss, which I think is God's way of getting our attention. So I'm grateful for the loss, but um, I also pray that God shows me uh, what I need to know gently, a little more gently going forward. But, you know, again, I think, I'm such a perfect example of getting back from the world what you put in when I was putting a lot of inflammation and opinion and and sort of force into the world. The world came back at me with a lot of opinion mm. and force and inflammation. And that is the world that was reflected to me. And as I get deeper into my self-kindness practice, the world is coming back to me more verdant and peaceful and loving. And that is not 
you know, I'm not speaking about what is happening in our communities of color. I'm not speaking about police brutality. I'm not speaking about um, the violence of our um, president's rhetoric. I'm not speaking about that is true and it's there. But in my system, the world is felt as a more loving, verdant place. And it enables me to be, I think, a more grounded, responsible, loving light. And following in the words of Dr. Martin Luther King, it's the love that burns out the dark, you know. I'm not going to do it by hating on people who espouse the very views I have only just dropped. Like it will change because I love those people. And that love comes from having so much self-love that it spills over and it cannot help but touch everyone I come in contact with. And to just find the love that is there everywhere um, and try and be, just pray that I be, pray and pray that I be, that I interrupt cycles of violence with self-kindness and self-love. Hmm. Wow. I, I love everything that you have shared and I could continue to have this conversation for a lot longer <laughs> and, but to honor your, your time and your gift and of being so generous and courageous in your, your conversation and what you shared today. Um, you know, I, I have a feeling that people listening are going to want to go out and find you in other places, find some of your writing, find some of what else you've shared. So how, how can we do that? How can we get more of you in our lives uh, <laughs> besides, besides just re-listening to this podcast over and over? Well, astonishingly, having done nothing except pull up thistles and build a yurt for the last several months. I have a couple of things going on right now, which is um, Oprah Magazine's just, um, I have an article in this month's Oprah Magazine. Um, it's my inaugural article for them. I loved writing this story about deciding to stay home and write deeper, live deeper, think quieter, um, and be that loving change and anchor in that loving change. Um, and so that's out this month. And then next month, um, my latest memoir, Travel Light, uh, Move Fast, which is, um, it, it comes out next month in paperback. And it is, it's really all about the beginning of this process of grief and about how my father dealt with loss. Um, and what an example he was for me, uh, and how, he sort of died in this riotous way. I mean, we the way you do anything is the way you do everything, right? Mm. Um, but the beginning of my real lessons um, and my real, I think, surrender to what is, to what what is. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's such a such a joy and such a pleasure, and just it's like the combination for me is like drinking a warm cup of tea and just getting one of those great hugs where it, it, <laughs> it, it extends just a moment longer than the polite hug. It's like that, mm, you just lean in. So nice. So we could all use today. extra hugs during COVID. My goodness. Mm, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for being here today. All the love. Thanks, Pete. 
Mm. <laughs> wow. I just felt like Alexander gave us so much to reflect on. If you haven't already been doing some of that reflection, you know, dismantling the ego. I, I love some of her words. Uh, you know, this this idea of having gotten so comfortable with numbing and didn't realize that that numbing was there and then being in touch with those indigenous um, cultures and wisdom that has run through the threads of her life and witnessing how that has allowed her to sit with the painful through all those adventures of her life. So how are we sitting with that in our lives? How are you sitting with that in your life? What is your self-kindness practice that you're calling forward? If you find that this podcast is serving you, would you share it with somebody else? I feel like growing uh, an, uh, growing kindness is an act of self-kindness. It's a self-kindness to want to see a kinder world around us. So sharing this podcast subscribing to it so you're getting it regularly, maybe using it again as a stepping point for a kindness conversation in your life. And I invite you again to go to PeteSibley.com and see, is there something there that resonates with you? Maybe give me a shout and we can talk about um, what that might look like, brainstorm some ideas. Or you could also take a look at that four-week program that I'm uh, setting up, and we're going to walk through what is self-kindness, how could it look in our lives as something that is active, right there, ready when we need it, not something that's just this lovely intellectual conversation, but that we really begin to, I I love Alexandra's words, really take it from a deadening practice to alive and vibrate vibrant and liberated so be kind take a moment for you whatever that looks like to extend that kindness that i know you're so good at and turn it back on you i love that you're here i know that you are a super busy beautiful important person in your world and the fact that you would take some time to listen to this podcast means so much to me. So again, would you subscribe or would you rate it and leave a comment? Thanks so much. I look forward to seeing you next week. I love you. And I'll leave you with this song of ours. Tired of the grind Feels like I'm losing my mind When I know there's more I'm meant to be Always being kind the back of the line When's it gonna be my time to rise I might go down but I'll get up Never been afraid to ride it out No matter how many times I've fallen to the ground I might go down but I'll get up Never been afraid to ride it out I'm